Good morning, family. How are we all this morning? Very good. So we'll launch right in and do a bit of a recap, shall we? Uh, The last two weeks, we have been on a tramping journey, making our way through a track called Reading and Understanding the Bible. The first week, we did a conditions and pack check to make sure that we had all that we needed to get the most out of the hard track before us. We made sure we had the mindset of meditation and study and the shoes to match. We made sure we had packed ourselves the adequate supplies and resources that we would need to get us through the journey. And having made sure that we were actually ready, last week we began walking the track And as we did, I explained that there were actually three different types of literary styles in the Bible, or the equivalent of three different types of terrain that make up that track, and that consequently we needed to know what kind of terrain we were on so that we could walk accordingly. Now, I am not a crunchy fan myself. I agree with Seb on that front, Um, but I do have with me here three Lindor chocolates, So, would someone like to tell me what one of the literary styles or pieces of terrain we travelled over were? Oh, poetic. Poetry. Well done. Thank you, Tanya. Tori? Hey? Poetic. Yep. Look at this. Crickets paying coming in. And at the back, what's the final one? No, close. Who yelled that out? (laughs) Mr. Collins? But most importantly, we learned that no matter what terrain we are traveling over as we walk through the Old Testament, whether it be narrative, prose discourse, or poetry, that we can always see the summit in the distance. We learn how the Bible is one unified story that leads and points to Jesus. And that every step we take on the journey beautifully points to and brings us closer to the foot of the cross and the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3. We always consequently then need to be asking ourselves, how is what I am currently reading and walking through fitting into the journey to the summit and the need for that. So we have actually covered a lot. And you may well be wondering what on earth more there is to have on your tramping journey through the Bible. After all, you now have a good knowledge of the type of track, all the gear that you need, and the summit to walk towards. However, as your tour guide, there is just one more thing about this track that I want to share with you all that will make this journey incredibly meaningful. And that is that the Bible is filled with ongoing themes. And consequently, as we walk, we are going to see certain things over and over and over again. The repetition of these things does not make our journey boring, but rather, It adds to the beauty of our journey to the summit, and it allows us to grasp just how unbelievably sophisticated 
and special this track that we are on is. In fact, as we walk, we will become accustomed to looking out for these repetitive things. So let me give you some examples. Hmm. Last week, as we began walking the journey, we arrived, obviously, at Genesis 1. And we very quickly arrived at an expanse of water. We watched how, through the creation narrative, God divides water and brings forth dry land on day three. We remember that the Bible says that before God touched it, darkness was over the face of the deep. And thus, God brings order to this deep, dark, watery chaos by dividing it and separating it. He separates the waters and takes them from a chaotic state to a state where humans can dwell in goodness. And what is significant for us is that this is only the first time that we will see an expanse of water on our journey and witness how an expanse of water before us is used to separate and move something from a chaotic state to a good one. In fact, just five chapters later, or a few hundred meters further into our track, we are going to see another expanse of water, one that actually floods our track temporarily. As we see God over 40 days bringing down an expanse of water to separate the chaotic, disobedient people who are filling the earth from Noah's family, the few who are deemed good, who move through the waters on the ark. The earth is moved from a state of chaos to a state of refreshment. We continue through our Genesis narrative, and we arrive in Exodus where we soon find ourselves on the edge of the Red Sea. Yet again, we see how this expanse of water marks a key point of separation. The Israelites enter the water in a state of slavery and chaos and darkness. And as they journey through and leave the water and come onto dry land again, they are free. And the waters also come down on the Egyptians to separate them from the Israelites. We journey through the rest of the Exodus narrative. We journey through the post-discourse tracks of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then back in the narrative terrain of Joshua, we find another expanse of water. In Joshua 3, as the Israelites finally, after 40 years are approaching the promised land. And in Joshua 3, 7, it says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. 
And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive you out from before the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Peruvites, the Amorites, and the Jezebuthim. I've been practicing all week and I still can't do it, but I'm glad you know who I'm talking about. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. Uh, and those flowing down toward the sea and the salt sea were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant and of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now what does that remind you of, folks? This scripture reminds us vividly of the experience of passing through and journeying through the expanse of water back in Exodus. Yet again, we see a transition of states of being, with the Israelites moving from their state of chaos in the wilderness into a state of goodness in the promised land. We keep walking our journey across multiple terrains, and significantly, as we near the summit of the cross, we run into another expanse of water. And in actual fact, we discover how these repetitive expanses of water are signaling something that is wholly meaningful to our lives today. In Matthew 3.1, we read, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And later John says that he is baptizing people in the waters of repentance. So as we arrive at the Jordan in our Bible reading journey, we can think back on all of the waters that we have already passed through to date as we have journeyed through the Old Testament. And we can recognize the symbolism of what it is that we have actually been walking through. We've seen how, right from the beginning, 
God uses water to bring order to chaos and bring those he is watching into a new state. We saw in Genesis how he takes the whole world into a new state by bringing order to chaotic waters and brings forth a state of new land. We saw again in the flood of Genesis how God uses water to take the whole world from an existing state of chaos to a state of new beginning. He brings Noah safely through the water. We see in Exodus 14 how God moves his people through the Red Sea, taking them from an existing state of slavery as they enter into a new state of freedom and newness as they journey out of the waters. And we see God again bringing his people through the waters of the Jordan as they move from an existing state of being in the wilderness into a new state of dwelling in the promised land that they have been waiting for. And then here, just before the summit, John the Baptist reveals to us how when we are baptized, we are publicly declaring that when we enter the waters of repentance, we are in a state of chaos but come through them and enter a new state of partnership with God. We, like the world and the Israelites before us, start in one state. But as we pass through the waters, we enter a new one. Baptism is the latest illustration of how God brings his people through water in a meaningful way. Seeing them move from one state to the next So keep an eye out for expanses of water throughout your journey of reading and understanding the Bible. This is just one landmark that you will see repeatedly and for significant reason. And this is just one example of a theme or image that you will see repeatedly as you keep journeying towards the summit. Let us explore another Another piece of scenery you will see repeatedly is high places or mountaintops. The Bible Project podcast says that high places symbolize where humans experience the presence of God and a moment of decision. We see after the flood, for example, Noah and the ark come to rest on the mountains of Ararat, where Noah makes an altar and makes a sacrifice to God. The Bible says that God smells a pleasing aroma of the offering and decides to never flood the earth again. We see Abraham being told by God to go to the land of Moriah and go up a mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. We see Abraham obediently go up the mountain that God shows him, bind his son to an altar, and prepare to kill him. But our Bibles say that right at the key moment, seeing Abraham's willingness to kill his son in obedience, the Bible says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And a few verses later, it says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of enemies. 
an absolutely key moment then in our journey is this mountaintop moment. As God promises to bless and multiply Abraham's offspring, whose history we continue to journey through. And one of these offspring is Moses, who, like his ancestors, also has his own moments with God on mountaintops. Firstly, when God brings him to Horeb, described in our Bibles as the mountain of God. And God appears in the form of a burning bush. There it is. And commissions Moses to return to Egypt and deliver his people, the descendants of Abraham, from their bonds of slavery. God has been described as hearing the groans of his people and their cry for rescue. And this mountaintop moment with Moses is God recruiting him to enact the rescue. But note that God didn't appear in a field where Moses was tending sheep or in Moses' bedroom. God brought him to a mountaintop. As he does again a few chapters later, when Moses goes up the mountain to be in God's presence and receive the Ten Commandments or the terms of the New Covenant. In all of these mountaintop moments, the biblical figure that we are journeying with experiences God's presence on the mountain. And these experiences signify and mark decisions by God. Importantly, we must also remember that the summit we are continually walking towards is also a high place. And as we know, something pretty darn spectacular happens on that mountaintop moment as God fulfills his decision to save us. So in addition to symbolic water all through our journey and mountaintops throughout our journey, you will see a lot of animal sacrifice and blood as you walk and journey through. And we discussed a little bit of that last week. You'll also see temple structures as people seek to return to the original Genesis state of being able to dwell in the presence of God. You'll also see certain numbers coming through all of the time. And these are just some, are just some of the reoccurring themes and pieces of scenery that you will see over and over and over again as you keep walking. These themes and repeated images all help us to understand the context and the significance of what it is that we are walking through, and ultimately, how truly beautiful our summit moment is. But there is just one final theme that I wanted to specifically share into today, acknowledging, as I've said already, that there are many, 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 but one more that I wanted to focus on, and that is that the biblical figures that we meet face tests. And when they face those tests, they fail. The first test humankind is presented with takes the form of two trees, which becomes symbolic of the ultimate choice all humans face. Now, remembering back to our first steps on the journey through Genesis, we'll remember that in the garden of beauty that we started walking through, 
there were two trees. One was the tree of life, which God told us we could eat from as much as we wanted. However, there was also a tree in the garden called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Awesome. Which God placed in the garden, I believe, to provide us with a choice or a test. Would we choose to live in partnership with him, surrendering to his wisdom and plan for us? Or would we choose to do our own thing, taking from the tree that he had instructed us not to, and living by our own wisdom and desires? And as we journey through the Old Testament, with all of its different terrains and all of its consistent imagery, we will see people continually failing this original test, choosing to do their own thing over and over and over again. We will see people taking metaphorically from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and doing things their own way, rejecting God and his wisdom. And as we know, these decisions to do our own things often have chaotic consequences. But we see Adam and Eve eating of the original trees and failing their test, being evicted from the garden as a result. We see a world filled with people failing the test who are living so far away from God that he chooses to bring upon a flood. While we see him pass the test of being willing to sacrifice Isaac on the mountaintop, we've already seen Abraham failing the test of faith and sleeping with Hagar to bring fulfillment to God's promises. We see the Israelites in the wilderness, fresh from coming through the waters and entering a new state of freedom, thanks to God, only to then decide to worship a golden calf, failing the test by choosing to take matters into their own hands. Now, some of you may remember that I started this series three weeks ago by reading to you all a passage from Judges. Do you know or want to know how that passage takes us closer to the summit and why I think it is included in the canon? I know Steve Tomsey does. He's been asking me, are you going to tell us the answer? <laughs> yes, I am, Steve. Right now. Because as you journey through the judge's narrative, you will read over and over and over again a phrase similar to, and the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. The narrative in Judges I read to you was an example of a, the degree of moral degradation that had happened amongst God's chosen people once they had entered the promised land and how, in the absence of a godly leader, were continuing to choose to live according to their own desires and wisdom. They represent another generation of people taking from the wrong tree and failing the original test of choosing God and his ways. Following the period of Judges, we eventually meet a famous fellow named King David on our journey. And while we know him as a man after God's own heart, we watch him fail his test as he sleeps with Bathsheba, 
and kills her husband. And the mirror back to the Garden of Eden is very significant with Mr. King David. Um, the Eve, Eve sees the apple and says, yeah, that looks good, and takes. And David sees Bathsheba on the roof and thinks, yeah, she looks good, and takes. His sons also do what is right in their own eyes as they become kings. And ultimately, time after time, we see people doing their own thing and failing the original test by rejecting God and his ways. That is until we get close to the summit and we see Jesus in the desert. And we read in Matthew 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Fair enough. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you. Ironic. If you will fall down and worship me, And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So here, after Jesus has passed through waters of baptism, and before he ascends to a high place to die on a tree to fulfill God's decision to save us, Jesus passes the test. The devil tempts him, and Jesus doesn't fail. He doesn't take, and instead he rebukes and rejects the devil and his ways. And it's actually really symbolic that Jesus gets tested with the things that the Israelites were also tested by and failed in. So there's also symbolism in that, but that's another sermon for another day. Finally, after journeying all the way through the Old Testament, we find someone who passes the original test, who chooses God's ways, who doesn't take the temptations before him. Here in the desert, we get even closer to that summit where Jesus can now act as the pure sacrifice and have his blood poured out to atone for our sins. And the taking of the past, the present, and the future. And what is also pretty cool is that we see other themes and images coming out through here in the desert. God made it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he was filling the earth with water. 
the Israelites had been in the wilderness or the desert for 40 years after originally coming through the waters of the Red Sea and before they moved through the waters to take Jericho. And then we see Jesus in the desert for how long? 40 days. After coming through the waters of baptism, Jesus was such an incredible fulfillment of so many prophecies and symbols. And he arrives to save humanity from their generations of taking and failing, restoring us, if we choose, to our Eden position. Ultimately, family, the consistent imagery and themes that we will continually walk past on our journey highlight, to me at least, how sophisticated and incredible the nature of this book is. If we pay studious attention to everything we will pass, we will see how God is working. Every word is crafted and put in the Bible for a reason. And as we travel across the different terrains of the Old Testament and move to our summit, we will see God putting into place his plan. So switching out now, as we come to the close of this series today, there is just one more thing that I want to say as your tour guide. After today, a shift is going to come. You are going to have to pick up your own pack and either start or continue working, walking through this journey that we have been reading and understanding the Bible on your own. And as you do that, there are going to be moments of inevitable confusion. There will be moments of frustration. There will be moments where it is hard. And as we face these confusing, frustrating, and hard moments, we may well reach the point where we think, Mm, what is the point of this again? Why should I be doing this? Especially when we're busy or tired or when we'd rather reach for the remote than the word. And so my final point to you as your tour guide is this. Press on. And always remember what the purpose of walking this journey is. Do you know what the purpose is for starting and walking this hard track of reading and understanding the Bible. Why, as an eldership, we are championing this walk this year, even though it is hard and challenging. Our purpose is that by walking this track, each of us would grow, not just in our understanding of God's character, but will be completely grounded in his truth that is revealed to us as we journey. As we walk, we learn about how God treats those that he loves. We learn to discern his voice in our lives by reading how he speaks to others. We learn about his master plan to save humanity and our place in that rescue plan. And this track gives us confidence in who we are and whose we are and how we fit. And not only does such a confidence ground us in our relationship with God and fulfilling his mission, but it also equips us to stand against the lies of the devil that he loves to sow into our minds and into our spirits. 
And Jesus gives the best illustration of how a grounding in Scripture and a soul well-versed in this track is equipped to take on the devil and his lies and to tackle temptation when it comes, because it inevitably will and does every day. When the devil tempts Jesus in the desert, Jesus actually responds every single time by quoting Scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy every single time. When the devil says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread, Jesus simply responds by saying, it is written, and, quote, and quoting Deuteronomy 3 verse 3, 8 verse 3. Jesus is wholly grounded in the truth. The word is written on his heart. He has studied it since he was a boy, and he can quote it with no doubt or pause when temptation comes his way. How can we similarly say to the devil when he comes to tempt or taunt us, it is written as Jesus did, if we don't know what's written? I'll say that again because it's actually really important. How can we say to the devil when he comes to tempt and to taunt and to sow his lies, and to ruin our spirit, and to rob us. How can we say when he comes, it is written, as Jesus did, when we don't know what is written? How can we ground ourselves in the truth of this track if we have not walked it? Jesus knew the scriptures we know as the Old Testament so well. He had walked and studied it since he was a boy, and the result was his confidence in the word, its truth, and some seriously strong spiritual muscle, which strengthened him for his ministry. And as followers of Jesus in the modern day, seeking to magnify him, we are called to have the same sense of grounding in the truth, to have the word written on our hearts, and to be able to quote and use it as a weapon when the devil comes. So, what are the next steps for you in this journey? Uh, my heart, and, and that of the other elders, is that this series has hopefully inspired, maybe a little bit, and equipped you to get into the Word a bit more, to ground in self, and equip yourself in it. The vision says to fall in love with it, to fall in love with the Word of God. Now, I don't know where each of you are at. I don't know what your schedules are um, or what stage you're at with regards to Bible reading. Um, I don't know whether you've walked it many, many times or whether you're just thinking about maybe starting for the first time. But can I recommend the following steps for you to consider? Back in the first week, I stressed the need for you to equip yourselves with the right tools and resources to help you get the most out of this journey, to fill your pack. And it has been really encouraging to hear how some of you have already been and brought yourself a concordance or something similar to help you along. And to encourage us all to do pack checks and equip ourselves um, I called Brian Watts earlier in the week. Um, he owns the um, Christian bookstore on Main North Road, and he agreed 
uh, that if any of you, any SABC church member, go and visit and buy some resources to fill your packs to help you on your Bible reading journey, he'll give you 25% off until the end of March. Right, there you go. Incentive. Go and fill your packs, people. Equip yourselves. Secondly, can I encourage you to find people to take this journey with? Again, that first week, I talked into how the Bible was originally written as communal literature. It was never designed to be read alone in isolation entirely, but rather read over and discussed together. And while quiet meditation and study is great and there is exceptional value in it, I love it. You will glean so much more by sharing and discussing what you are reading with people that you trust. Plus, there's that whole accountability element to it. So, who in your life could you invite to walk this journey with? Who are you going to tell about what you're reading? Who is going to know where you're at and encourage you along? Who is going to hold you accountable if it's been a while since you took a step? And thirdly, get started. (laughs) Start walking. If you are not already on a Bible reading plan of some nature, um, ask God. What book of the Bible would you have me read? What book of the Bible would you have me study? Ask him where he would like you to start. And then pour into that book. Buy a specific commentary. Understand what kind of terrain it is. Grasp what its context is in terms of the overall mission and walk to the summit. Soap it. But start. Get moving. Um, I'm in the process. I'm in the process of getting a Bible book club sorted out. Um, This won't be a connect group, so there will be no pastoral care element attached, but more of an interest group, whereby once a month, pastoral care is great. I'm all for it, just to clarify. I just don't have the time to do it. (laughs) Anyway, so interest group, whereby once a month, those who are interested will simply come together, select a book of the Bible that they want to study in the coming month, and then reflect and share on the book that we've read the month prior. Like I said, I'm in the process of ironing out the details um, for that. But if you are the kind of person who knows that you need structure and accountability and would be interested in that once it's up and running, come and have a yarn with me um, after the service and I'll keep you updated as the details fall into place. But ultimately, though, in whatever way suits you, start. Discern intentionally where to go and where to start. I have now given you all that I can (laughs) as your tour guide to get you going. I'm very much looking forward to having a week off. But I have given you all that I can so that it can be a rewarding experience for you. 
But I can't carry you the whole way. And neither can the speaker on any Sunday morning. You actually have to do some walking yourself. So as the band come up, um, this has very much been a series on reading and understanding the Bible with a real focus on the Old Testament. Um, the New Testament, well, that's a series for another day. Um, but I really, um, I've talked about the summit a lot. And as we come to the end of the series, and as we come huh, yeah, to the end, I just wanted to spend some time actually at the foot of the cross that we've been working towards to spend some time looking at the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3 that that represents. And I've been thinking, um, gosh, you know, how am I going to finish? How am I going to finish, Lord? And he just told me this morning, just as Seb was speaking, um, and he's asked me to read out to you Hebrews 9, which, um, if you remember back to week 2, and I talked about Leviticus and the Day of Atonement, um, Hebrews 9 is the New Testament mirror of that and shows the fulfillment of it so Hebrews 9 it says in verse 11 but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands like in Leviticus not of this creation he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, like Aaron, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called like us may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant, covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, which we studied, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And as Seb has brought through this morning, a real element of praise. And I think that that passage signifies how worthy Jesus is to be praised and what he's done for us. So can I invite you, we'll leave that image, well, can I invite you as the team plays to sit at the foot of the cross, to gaze at the beauty of him hanging there and bleeding for you. The summit of the journey that we have been walking towards and to offer and pour out your praise and gratitude for what it is that he has done. I'm out. <laughs>